Recording in progress. KB, active the hive. Launching new hive sequence. Welcome, welcome to the Smarter Marketing Revolution, presented by Hidden Force Media, with your host, Alex Vonderhaar. Yo, 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 welcome back. It's Monday. And uh, as many of you know, because you've been blowing up my DMs for the last freaking four months because I love you guys that much and it's just been fun working with you. But um, we're back in the studio. It poured. Our neighbors broke through our wall over Christmas. Literally the day after Christmas, I got a, uh, I got a call from the landlord saying, uh, hey man, I got some bad news. Your office is completely flooded. And we lost all of our sound gear, all of Literally everything you see behind me has been replaced in the last three to four weeks. And I thought we could come back with a really big bang and that we could make a good splash and hopefully bring you guys a lot of value. Real fast, though, I want to remind you of the fee before we hop into today's amazing guest. We don't run ads. I don't pitch you my course or anything like that, like every other marketer out there. Um, All I ask is that if you found value out of today's show, if me or our amazing guest made you laugh, smile, think of something funny or give you a cool insight of what you can leverage in your own marketing. Just share the show, take a screenshot, share it out on social, give us a tag. Make sure you give my man a follow on social media as well. And we're going to hop right into it. Today, I've got Ryan Kutcher here with me, who is behind a lot of the major brands that you guys see on social, that you see all over the place, whether you're in New York or Austin or all around the world. You've probably seen one of Ryan's commercials or ads uh, but I'm going to let him kind of hop into it and uh, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is gonna happy be Monday. Happy Monday, and this will come out today. So we got we, oh, we wow. yeah we have a pretty quick turnaround time. You guys are fast. Yes, we are. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of editing, I'm sure. Uh, no, no. And, yeah, and on like we were talking right before we recorded, like. Um, so many of these podcasts anymore, it's just like they're rapid fire questions and it, you never get into yeah. like the juice of what's actually going on. And I was like, you know, a lot of our audience is CEOs, business owners, marketers, advertisers. So you can kind of get as nerdy as you want and your eyes just kind of lit up like, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what is the best format for a podcast? There's so many now. It's like, right. should it be really short and and punchy? you know, that, that kind of classic interview style almost feels like the antithesis of a podcast. Yeah. Where what you really want to hear is like the truth, you know, not, not, not like a late night TV show interview where I've got some prepared answer. I've got nothing prepared today. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I straight up told you too. I was like, dude, I have zero questions written out. Like it, it's just not going to happen that way. Uh, we do rapid fire interview or like not interviews, but like I'm kind of like, I come in, I'm seeing something with my clients all across the board. And I'm like, I'm almost using it as like a PSA to my clients at times. Yeah. Like when I'll come in yeah. and those are my short ones. Those are like my five to 10 minute ones where I'm just kind of going at a topic and looking yeah. at it from like four or five different angles or approaches of how you could come at this. And then I just let it rip and publish it. Yeah. I mean, that seems good. You want to try to give people something valuable, right? I think, so can I ask you some questions? Sure. What is neuromarketing? Yeah. So when the fMRI machine came out inside of medical, 
Um, it really revolutionized the way that people understand the brain, how we look at blood flow, how we look at um, how we look at customer response. Even more interesting from that. So big companies like Amazon, NFL, Nike, Disney. Uh, they were all paying in the mid-90s to have people put into fMRI machines and show them ads, show them pictures, show them videos, and they were just watching how their brains lit up. And what we were finding is that self-report of customer feedback was actually very skewed, or why people were saying that they bought one product over another was more influenced by non-conscious thoughts or non-conscious patterns around their buying habits. So over the last 15, 20 years, there's been a slew of research that has come out that kind of goes into what are actually, what's actually going on inside the brain. What are the levers that we need to pull? What are those underlying principles that make up good ads or good marketing that capture people's attention and then being able to retain that information later? And it pairs up with classical psychology around how do we train memory? How do we train recall within different products and within different brands? Okay. And so what, what were some examples of maybe successful um, avenues to get someone to remember your, your message or was it, I guess this is kind of a two part question. Sure. Maybe I'll leave it at that for, for, for the first part. So what gets people to remember things? Um, typically it's tying into some level of emotion. There are colors and color patterns and gradients that work better than others. And that's getting super kind of technical. And then we start looking at things like eye gaze using infrared eye tracking. And if we have too complex of patterns around images or text inside of an advertisement, it becomes really difficult for people to remember the image that they were looking at. Yeah. And then what about, were they testing people basically awareness like hey recall later yeah um, aided unaided right and so a good study of that was found with sense so they did this and uh they did this in a bar in miami so they were looking at which sensations would actually increase revenue sales at the bar by pumping different smells into the air and then they asked them later when they went to the bar again or they followed them same customers how much were they willing to spend at the bar that night when they didn't have those scents infused into the air, their sales dropped dramatically. Yeah, I mean, I know that this, there's that study where if you hand someone a warm cup of coffee versus a cold cup of coffee, they right. either think you're like warm and cuddly or cold right. and um, I guess I was wondering too about you know how much of that is actionable for you know in the in the direct in the direct channels. It's very Facebook, yeah. etc. So it. It is impactful when we're looking at creative on those platforms, but that's just the, that's almost the, the setting or the primer to everything, right? Um, and then carrying that experience through. So if you're, if you're part of a brand or if you're marketing a brand that is really kind of, um, let's say like catchy, right? Like there, like there's a lot to it. It's exciting up front. It's exactly what you would want to see out of a Facebook or an Instagram ad. And then we go to the website and there's no continuity through there. Or if we go to a product and the website and there is continuity there, could you open it and have surprise and delight that instantly retains? So one of the things that we did, uh, gosh, probably four or five years ago now, we started putting with a clothing brand, we started spraying all the clothes with a mister before they would go into the bag, real light. And uh, we were testing scents for memory recall. And then we would ask mm. the people later, 
hey, how often do you wear the shirt? And they were saying that the ones that smelled like orange, orange essential oils with water, they wore more often than ones that were sprayed with nothing or some of the other essential oil smells that we were using because they're shipped, yeah, in, I mean, they're shipped in poly mailers. So that smell is able to be contained in there. And then when they open it up, now they're getting more than just one sense. I mean, if you look at brands like Roman or if you look at brands like uh, Manscaped, like they're, they've spent so much around their packaging and their ideology and what that experience is when they're opening up that package that oftentimes the most important sense, which is smell for memory because it's so close within our brain, is completely overlooked. So it'll smell like a warehouse. It'll smell like a factory. And, yeah. and when you're selling a premium product, you want to encapsulate that entire experience. I mean, everyone knows about the new car smell. Yeah. New shoes for me. I love shoes. That's that makes a lot of sense. So there, I've, I've and I've talked to people too about like in the D 2 C world, where if you're sourcing product from particular parts of uh, the world, sometimes it comes with a unique scent that can be either pleasing or not pleasing. I guess I don't want to out any particular countries, but uh, <laughs> I've, I've heard you know that 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 can be a manufacturing issue. Yeah. Um, but I guess in terms of my world, living in the advertising world, that's like product experience. I'm wondering how you put that into play in terms of, I think you mentioned, you know, simplicity, not getting too like visually graphic, right. um, graphic design that isn't too complex or, or, or busy. Um, and then what you said as well is like basically just making sure every path along the, the pipeline doesn't feel like you've dropped someone off. Right. Like it seems right. almost so simple. Right. Where it's like, if you've got an ad that looks this way and kind of communicates this way, make sure that the website does too. Yeah. <laughs> and Hey, make sure that the, the PDP does as well yeah. and make sure that the packaging does as well. It's like not matching luggage exactly, but it's like, yeah, don't drop people off. Cause at the end of the day, it's kind of like, we're, we're just kind of goldfish, you know? Yeah. Um, so how do you put that into play with, you know, how does, how does that influence the way that you work with your clients? That's usually a later step. When we find a lot of our clients, they're kind of all over the place because they, they, um, when we usually find clients, they're very early on into their business life. They're probably four to five years old. Um, most of the time they've had one or two other agencies and the agencies that they hire are typically, um, one trick ponies. So they'll either, hey, all, all we do is SEO, all we do is ad buying, all we do is product design, and none of it's ever cohesive. So oftentimes how we start is just getting the fundamentals back into play, set the plan, set the course, and let's run the play. And then once we're seeing success, then we'll look at adding different neuromarketing techniques into play for them. And a lot of that can come from website, ads, copywriting, and that's really where we start. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you, you guys are taking kind of a more scientific, you know, human psychological approach. I guess for me, I, I hear that stuff and I'm like, man, it feels spot on and it feels kind of intuitive, but intuition is not, you know, if everyone had great intuition, I guess they wouldn't need, they wouldn't need neuromarketing, you know, where it's like, 
I've had to learn that myself, you know, as the world has evolved into all these different kind of social channels and stuff like that, you know, you kind of want to have this conversation through your advertising, but you have to play by the rules of the channel and respect the fact that an audience in Instagram is zipping by at 35 miles an hour or TikTok is just uh, probably even faster, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting how that comes in, like the psychology comes into play. I, I like studying psychology when I was in college and that was the part of economics that I thought was kind of the, the most interesting, more so than the math and science part yeah. was, was the human psychology part of it. Yeah, it all plays. Um, usually one of the books I recommend to people once they're starting to get into it is Thinking Fast and Slow mm-hmm. because it's such a great intro to a lot of behavioral economics. It's a thick book. It's not necessarily one that's um, it's, it's not a page turner. But it is, <laughs> but it is really interesting how much research has gone on inside of behavioral economics and how that plays into any level of influence that you're trying to have, whether that's for your business or whether you're a, just a consumer. The part of it that's interesting, though, for me is like you know, all this research, all this homework that that's been done, and you kind of covered off a couple of the fundamental things that are kind of universally true: is like try to be simple, uh, try to be consistent. Uh, beyond that, it's it's hard to really like take universal lessons from that stuff because it's like, so what works every time? And it's like, we don't know. <laughs> we, we just conducted a study and we have no idea. <laughs> but here's here's a few things that have worked. Right. Um, which is funny. I mean, I'm I'm reading Ogilvy on advertising again. And, you know, that's a that's a 45 year old book. Yeah. That one right here. <laughs> this one right here. <laughs> So you read this thing when you're in ad school or maybe if you're studying ad- advertising um, in, in college or, or wherever. And, and for me, I read it and I was like, yeah, whatever, man. It's kind of boring. And then you come back to it and you realize like this guy has outlined the fundamentals of so many relevant components to advertising today. I mean, right here on the back page, it's like how to X, how to X, how to do X, how to... How to run an advertising agency, relevant. How to choose an agency for your product. How to create advertising that makes a cash register ring. All he's got here is content marketing. Yeah. And super relevant, you know, to the problem that you might have. And the how-to format just has never gone out of style. That's exactly, you're like, yeah, I'd like to know how to do that. So it works every time, I guess. Um, and this guy was writing this stuff in the 70s. So. Yeah. Um. You know, I think those fundamentals, those neurological fundamentals were he probably wouldn't have talked necessarily in the same depth that you are. But, you know, he's he's got the same discovery, I guess, at the end. It all comes back to your consumer and the closer you are to them, the better off you are. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I think, you you know, you kind of mentioned a lot of the digital channels. One of the things that we've seen is, is certainly like, you know, I don't. I don't know if everyone quite realized how, how big that iOS change would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's been tremendous in terms of disrupting <laughs> what was a fairly good thing. How's that been for you? Like, what have you, what have you seen around that? Initially it kicked us in the gut. And I think any agency that says it didn't kick them in the gut at some level is just lying to themselves and lying to their customers. Because yeah. if you were running anything pixel based, which every digital marketer was at some point, you took a hard hit. What it really pushed back for us and where we've focused a lot of our clients is that first-party data 
and really ensuring that they understand how important that is. Where, so where do you, I mean, you know, look, the pixel was, it made, it, it made a lot of mediocre marketers, really good marketers, Yeah, you know, because it did all the work for you and it found such specific information. So in light of that, how, how have you supplemented or like what, what was, if, if, if it's not too sensitive to your, your line, oh, of work, right. how have you kind of, you know, cut, recovered from that? So like I said, we focused a lot on first party data and really focusing on building out email and SMS lists. And then we started getting multi-channel really fast. So figuring out, we talk um, top of funnel and back of funnel because front of funnel, back of funnel, everybody wants to talk top, middle, bottom, but that's only halfway through that entire purchase. We call the back of that, we have the honeymoon phase, which is like they just purchased from you. They're still in that perfect marriage phase. And then they move into the what have you done for me recently phase right underneath that, which would be the equivalent to the middle of funnel, right? Like they're kind of teetering on, man, I don't know if I want to buy from them again. And this is where those subscription models really kind of come into play. Like that's where they lose a lot of people is they've moved out of the honeymoon and what have you done for me recently phase. And then they just drop out into the death zone. Um, yeah. So we focused a lot of energy on how do we create feedback loops from the honeymoon phase and the what have you done for me recently phase because you're not dropping them back into the top of the funnel again. You're hitting right. them to middle or bottom of funnel again. So it's cheaper advertising, cheaper marketing again, and just focusing on those feedback loops a lot. And what are different tools and strategies we can use inside of that feedback loop to get people to have product recall, memory or brand recall, lift, all those things that are so important for us as we're moving through different marketing and advertising campaigns and a lot of it came with setting a course and showing our customers what direction we're going. So that way they feel like they're a part of that journey with us and they're not just a one-time purchaser. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of t- people talk about community as part of the importance of advertising. It sounds yeah. like a little bit, you know, <clears throat> you, you advertise to a stranger differently than you advertise to a customer. Yeah. And I definitely think, I, de- I definitely think that D to C world, because it was so, I don't want to say easy, but it was designed to go get new, new customers. Mm -hmm. A lot of people do neglect that sort of, all right, they bought something from you. How do you want to keep that? Because the cost of acquisition is, is one thing. It's a lot lower if you can just keep that customer and convert them at time and time again, you know? Um, But with that first party data, so you're talking about when, when, when a, when a company or a brand has, closed or uh, created a customer using that information and then focusing on, on, I would say maybe retargeting or, or, or nurturing. Yeah. Is that right? And then letting the word of mouth from those people spread because it, it's exponential. Man, so much of that stuff is just old school. Like your customers, your best advertising, they are. like word of mouth, listen they to us. Get that cost to click out of here. But but what it but what if that is the new way? Because I think I really think it is. I, I also wonder if it wasn't the way the whole time. You know, we lived through like that 10, 10 strong years of direct to consumer marketing where I think we were kind of fed a lot of BS yeah. about how it was really working and was it really working? You know, right. so many of those D to C unicorns are just not profitable companies. Right. They were like pump and dump schemes, you know, in a, <laughs> a lot of ways. 
I'm like, like with no offense to away luggage, but I'm like, how many people need luggage? You know, like, <laughs> I, I don't know what they think the size of this market is, but I don't think that many people need luggage. Well, let me so, flip this back to you. How, how did, how did iOS 14 affect you guys and what did you do to pivot? I mean, I think sort of, you know, look, so our, our agency is not, um, and was not like a media company mm-hmm. is per se. So we weren't living, breathing, um, so much of the mechanics of how we were putting, um, uh, advertising, um, uh, campaigns into market. Although that's, that is certainly a large part of kind of what we look at. So it was a little different for us than it was for say, like a digital marketing company that was doing media. Sure. Right. Um, but it certainly affected us because now there's a lot more scrutiny on like, Hey, did we get our story straight? Mm-hmm. You know, is this, is this campaign targeting the right people? How do we learn about them to create that insight that's going to drive top of funnel and movement? Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of those fall back on the things that we were kind of doing prior to Facebook to begin with, you know, whether that's consumer research or um, deep, deep strategy with things like Mintel or, or, or whatever, where you're really trying to kind of information gather. Um, similarly, I would say like storytelling strategically about like, hey, you got to really, you know, one thing that we have learned is that you've got to be very hyper-focused on the message that you're delivering to your consumer. It has to, you know, you kind of referenced this before where it's like, it's got to be super simple, got to be super clear, and you got to be very uh, consistent with it. Those things became important as well because, I think with iOS, you could kind of throw a bunch of stuff out there and let the pixel find your, your person. And you could be a little bit sloppy, I guess. Yeah. And I think so, so, so the sloppiness has kind of gone away. And that's where we, we, we've hunkered down as an agency and focused more on things like ethnographic research, really getting to know our consumer for that top of funnel stuff. And, um, you know, I guess like on the back end, like you said, you know, I kind of threw up, I threw up Mr. Ogilvy over here, but doing really strong community nurturing, mm-hmm. um, trying to figure out how once you have a customer, your engagement with them as a, as a, um, as a brand can continue to add value so that they stay loyal, driving customer loyalty through storytelling. So, um, you know, I guess we're sort of focusing in the same places as you, but we do it through the kind of the storytelling and strategy lens lens. Um, I don't think, I think, I don't think it's like quote unquote hard, you know, I think it's about understanding exactly how you want to expend your efforts, which was what was so confusing with all the media proliferating, getting lost in the mechanics or the tactics of how does Instagram stories versus reels versus whatever. And I think for us, it comes back to those fundamentals. So that's, that's probably where the shift has been. It's like, all right, let's go back to those fundamentals and make sure that we're doing some of the, the stuff we can control really, really well. Kind of a long winded answer, but yeah, no, it's, it's good. It, it comes back to communication. And that's the job we're in, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's taking um, crazy entrepreneurs, wild brain and simplifying it you gotta you gotta focus you know i think it's very easy to get distracted or lost i mean if you scroll through instagram if your instagram is anything like mine i mean it's it's so much 
BS. I'm like, you got to do this. You need this tool. You got to do this. You need to be doing this kind of a thing. Or, you know, there's so many like hucksters out there telling you how to run advertising and content um, that it can be overwhelming. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think it's been a return to sort of the fundamentals and simplicity and in, in what it is that we're trying to do. Um, to communicate simply and clearly, you know, we say it's like, that's, Clear, concise, compelling. You know, find find that, and you're going to be you're going to be successful. So let's say you're sitting down with small mom and pop shop. Maybe they're turning forty, fifty grand a month. They say, Ryan, I have no idea. We've never done marketing. We've never done yeah. anything before. Help us. Where just where do we start? What does that pathway in your mind look like? How have you laid out that roadmap before? Yeah, so this this is actually super relevant to a couple engagements that we're in now. Um, maybe they're turning a little bit more than that, but like some some brands are super successful and they're not quite sure why. And so before we run into like storytelling or advertising campaigns, what we'll do is we'll try to get into some more of that consumer research or ethnographic research to really get into the mind of their consumer. That could be, um, you know, interviews. It could be you know, Mintel research, we'll do ethnographic studies with them to really get to the bottom of what's motivating their consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's going to be the key as to their, why they're, why they've been successful. You know, it's not because you've got, you know, distribution in 300 of those stores versus 300 of this store or, you know, um, and we'll do the same with them in, in D to C to really kind of analyze what's been working and what what we can extrapolate from that to help them find new audiences and to maybe help them, you know, expand that story. So it, it comes down to, like you said, like comes back to the consumer, you know, like what's what are the people that love you love about you? Um, and if we have a really strong understanding of that, then we can build from there. Love it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, like you said, it's like that, that first party, that first party information is really like the most valuable stuff. Cause those are the people that, that, that love something about you. So you've, you've done a great job with them. Now you have to kind of figure out how you can replicate that. So you've worked with a ton of different brands. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to rattle off a few because sure. I, I think one of your superpowers that it, that I've noticed from you so far is humility. And I think if I've asked you to label those off, you probably wouldn't, you, you probably <laughs> wouldn't, but from working with brands like Band-Aid, Macy's, Smirnoff, Kraft, Amazon Prime Video, Angry Orchard, what is like a common, like, like a common problem that most small business owners wouldn't think that these big brands still have and they're like, man, like if only I had, if I was making the money that Macy's is making, I wouldn't have these problems with my marketing. But it's just simply yeah. not true. No matter what level you're at, you're always going to have problems within your marketing. So what, like, like what are some of those things that most smaller brands don't realize? Hey, these big brands still struggle with this too. Man, it's, that's a great question. Um, and, and thanks for asking. I- the I'll just I'll sort of answer it by the way that we advertise what we do at Circus Maximus, which is we help brands get their story straight and tell them interestingly. It really does come down to like knowing why we want to say something, what we're trying to say, who we're trying to say it to, and how we say it. 
it's the basics. You know, it's like the, the, the things they teach you in journalism school. And you would think that, yeah, you get, you think, you know, I think it's a really great question because you feel like you see a brand that's maybe really successful, right? Maybe this is a billion dollar brand. Maybe they're turning a hundred million in revenue and you're like, well, clearly they cracked the code. Like they know exactly what they're doing and how to do it. And oftentimes that's just not the case. They're, they're confused. Um, sometimes as to their success, or maybe they're not as profitable as they want to be, or maybe they're seeing their sales plateau, or maybe they're not having great customer retention, or there's all these things that are happening to them. They're just happening at scale. Mm -hmm. But but I think for us, the problems that are the same at, at a large size and a small size are, are those fundamentals of like, what's our story? How do we get that story straight? And how do we tell it well? Um, and I'll just add that like at, at scale, that can be much harder to wrangle mm -hmm. than when you're maybe a little smaller. And so I think it's super valuable to get that right early on because if that thing is, is in place and you can scale it, I mean, you're going to save millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to get it correct later. I think one difference is that, you know, when you're small, maybe you're the founder and it's, you know, if you're a visionary or if you're an entrepreneur, it can be very hard to articulate your vision. In a larger organization, like the kind of the group of people that might be responsible for having that shared story is larger. Everyone's got their own agenda. You know, maybe they've got their own P&Ls and wrangling that story and getting everyone to kind of agree to, to understand it the same way, to be on the same mission um can be really really challenging and that's why you know it takes longer at the, at the larger the larger places but it's 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 that same the same problem of like what what are we clearly trying to communicate here and how are we doing that well i love that i want to go back in time a little bit to young ryan did you ever yeah. think that you would be running a marketing agency no, probably not. I, cause I didn't even know, you know, I didn't really know until I was almost through with college that it was even a real option. What'd you um, go to college for? I studied economics. Okay. But, you know, look, when you're like 18, 19, 20, it, for me, I didn't realize like that you can kind of do anything in the world. You know, I went to a college that was like, look, you can be an accountant. Or you can stay in academia, you know, and it was like, well, I don't know, those sound great. Although I probably would have benefited from paying more attention to accounting for sure now that I run my own <laughs> business. But, um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But, um, yeah, I just, because I, I, I didn't, I, you know, nowadays everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and everyone thinks being an entrepreneur is cool. It's actually really hard and you need to have a lot of experience to do it well. Most entrepreneurs aren't successful until they're in their mid forties, right? So like the most, um, I think 42 or 43 is the age that most people, uh, most entrepreneurs like kind of find their, their first success. Um, but no, I didn't think that I would do that. I started to get an inkling once I was working out in the real world that I was like, Oh, so anyone's allowed to do a business. <laughs> you could just do it. You can just start one. Um, you should probably have more of a plan than that. But like, that was the first time I started to realize like you can kind of do anything that you want in the world. 
um i don't i don't know like well if you weren't doing what you're doing now what would you be doing i was on track to become a neurosurgeon uh -huh. that's a long track sure is um i had a heart issue and it pulled me out of it all my advisors were like if like nobody's going to insure you as a doctor oh. at this level because you're going to be able you're going to have to be able to stand in the same spot or perform the surgery for 10, 12 hours sometimes. And yeah. no insurance company is going to give you that type of practice insurance. Fascinating. Yeah. So I pulled out and, um, I started, do you know what float tanks are? Yeah. So I started working at a float tank company right out of college and about two and a half months in the owner, it was me, the owner, his girlfriend, and one other person that worked there. And we were, after shifts, we were having some vodka tonics and he was like, Hey man, I, uh, I think we're going to go under in a few months if we don't figure some stuff out. Mm. This was like my first real job out of college. I wasn't working in retail or doing door knocking or anything like that. Um, yeah. so I was like, well, I can't go home and tell mom that I'm about to lose my job because I'm still living in our basement. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so that, that's, that's not going to fly. So he, we were looking around we were like, all right, well, how do we get customers? Right. Because it's, it's a great float tanks are great models for businesses. Um, yeah. it, it's an initial upfront investment, but then to run them, it's like a dollar 25 a session of actual yeah. product cost. And you charge anywhere from 70 to 80 bucks for an hour. It's a great, great model. Um, so I was like, all right, so let me learn some digital marketing. And with my background in psychology and neuroscience, I was like, well, this is just psych 101, social psychology and, uh, really trying to nail some of that down. So we started running Facebook and Google ads. And within about 18 months, we brought them from 100K in debt to 2.2 million a year. And for a small little mom and pop shop, right, of one owner and his girlfriend, mm -hmm. they're, they're through the moon. He's getting a, he got his mom a G-Wagon. He got him a new BMW i5. The girlfriend's driving around in a new Porsche. And I'm still living in mom's basement making 825 an hour. What's their profit margin? Like, it, it, it's like I said, it costs about, um, around two dollars for a session at the most. So, damn, you're, you're two million trying, in revenue getting the G wagon. That's a, let's pump the brakes a little. Yeah, like, uh, um, <laughs> we don't have to blow it all in one check, guys. right? So, but <laughs> I was making eight twenty five an hour, and we had actually built two two brick and mortar locations: the initial launch and then the new one. And yeah. I was managing both of those, a team of about eleven girls, all under the age of twenty five, because he only hired yeah. young females to run the front desk. And, uh, and here, I know psychology, he knows a little something about psychology himself. It sounds like, he, um, well, he was a model in New York. So he, yeah. he understands that game. Um, is this by you in like Ohio? Is that where this company yeah. was? Yeah. So you decided, okay, maybe I'll start my own marketing agency. It's interesting that you didn't figure, oh, I'll start my own float tank company. Well, it's about half a million dollars to get one started. That capital investment. Capital That's why they call investment. it capitalism. Yeah. I learned that one too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, but I, I started hustling, man. I went, I literally went door to door to find customers when I was still launching. Like, I would find a shopping center, and I was like, "Hey, are you guys running Google or Facebook ads?" And they were like, "No." And I was like, "Okay, let like, when's the last time you updated your website?" And they were like, well, "Sometimes we don't even have a website." And I was like, "Well, we need yeah. to get to like, let's have a website." And then yeah. it just started building. And then uh, I got my business really humming in like 2020. 
and I made the mistake of growing without the right people. So I, yeah. I let them all go, gave them nice severance checks and said, I'm restarting. And yeah. I, I hired somebody that was way outside of what I could afford. And he helped me with operations and really refining my systems. And it's been a scale scaling three years because of that. These are the stories that I really like. Cause I think you see so much of this BS on Instagram. I'm like, I'm going to take, yeah, to run your business, make a million dollars in a day. It's like none of that stuff reflects how people really start and run businesses at all. No. And your story sounds exactly like how it goes. Like, yeah, I started it with not much of a plan. I kind of worked really hard and then I realized that I had the wrong people. And then I, you know, but you're kind of figuring out like you're getting through the levels. Yeah. You know, little dunk levels. So congrats, man. That's Thank amazing. You. The other big thing uh, that I did is I hired mentors. Uh-huh. I uh, do you know what Arte Syndicate is? Nope. Do you know who uh, Ed Milet is? No, but I think maybe we need to have a conversation after this conversation. Yeah, we will. <laughs> so I can learn some of this. Um, I I hired two men. So Andy Fursella, who runs First Form Supplement Superstores and um, a bunch of other brands, him and Ed Milet, who was uh, World Financial Group's number one VP of Marketing and Sales for like four or five years straight. Um, dude's worth half a billion dollars. Andy's probably closing in that gap pretty quickly too. Um, they opened up something called the Arte Syndicate. There were like 300 of us that first started out in it. And I got mentors really early on that helped me really sta- establish core fundamentals within the business. And not yeah. just not just the same thing that where you're talking about, right? Like people that are like, I'm going to show you how to make a million dollars in a day. They're like, the first 20 years are going to suck. You're going to get kicked in the balls a lot. And you better either wear a cup or put in a mouth guard because you're about to go to war every single day. And here's how you go to war every single day and not lose your sanity while doing it. That's the truth right there. I love that. Um, I've been through that as a small agency owner as well. Like just some days feels like sheer force of will, but then you find someone like we found a really terrific CFO. Um, I joined a group called Vistage. I don't know if you know Vistage. I don't. Vistage is like a, there's probably 30,000 members globally. It's basically a CEO group. So you're, you're in a group with, um, 15 other CEOs. Then they're all running different kinds of companies. Like they might be running a digital marketing agency or a float tank company. Or, um, in my group, there's some folks that run, construction company or, you know, uh, one, one, one gal owns like six different uh, massage company, you know, massage locations um, here in Austin where I live. It is so valuable mm-hmm. to hear them talk. And like, it's like a, a, a company is almost like a top where you're trying to fucking spin this thing yeah. and get it to kind of like just and where it's running and it's just kind of on its own momentum and it's staying tight. But it's like most of them start real wobbly. Yeah. And, and and you discover as well that it's like it doesn't kind of matter what business you're in. At some point, you're taking the same lessons. You're yep. learning the same lessons. You're figuring out that all the fundamentals have to be the same. The business model is different, but the fundamentals are the same. The people that you need, you need to hire the best people because one really, really good person is worth 10 bad people. Yeah. But one bad person can ruin everything. Yep. <laughs> it's like crazy. What what do you like most about what you're doing? I like seeing my clients win because most of them come to us when they're not necessarily in a great spot. Some do, 
but most of them have come to us and they're like, man, like I've been stuck at 75 grand for nine months, right? I had this ad agency. They were blowing 15 of that a month on ads, not doing anything. Um, our website's getting like 2% conversion rate on it and nothing's working. And they come to us and we actually sit down, we create the strategic plan, we execute yeah. the plan, we pivot if we need to, and we focus on that holistic side of marketing and advertising and not just be a one-trick pony. And seeing the seeing those clients go from 75K a month to hundreds of thousands, some of them we've taken into the millions, it's really cool being able to be like, yeah. I was part of that team, I gave that family, because most all, almost all entrepreneurs are small families when they're first starting, right? And having having the wife or the kids look at their parents and be like, man, mom and dad did it. That to me is worth everything. It's worth the headache. It's worth the midnight phone calls. It's worth the crazy clients that blow you up 50 times in an hour. It, yeah. It's worth all of it. I love it, man. I love it. Well, what's your least favorite part? My least favorite part? Uh, trying to wrestle with the misconceptions around what it takes to get there because it it's just like you said it all it takes is one numb nuts that comes in and is like I'm going to show you how to get a 15x on Google every time consistently no matter how much you spend and it's just going to magically yeah. work and then all these yeah. business owners that we talked to afterwards, and we're like, no, like, let's set a plan. Let's work the plan because you'll get to the same result, but you won't have the headache. You won't have the ups and downs. You won't have the roller coaster of emotions that come with that. And you won't yeah. feel like you were lied to or duped in the process. And I, I, it kills me, especially with things like chat GPT. Now it's, um, it's just easier for these people to take easy money. Yeah. It's just when everyone's telling you on social media that it's like there's this quick fix, you just uh, start to believe it. You want to believe it so you want bad. To, yeah. What about you? Uh, what gets you out of bed every morning for this? I think building the team. Yeah. I think, um, you know, not to steal your answer, but like, when, when, you know, we show case studies because case studies show that it works. Yeah. And I think there's there's a real like, there's a validation in helping someone craft a, a story and a plan and see that things be successful. Um, so, you know, you said I like winning. I think that's, it, it's, it's some version of that. And then I think there's definitely some ego wrapped into it too, because so much of what we do is on the creative side mm -hmm. that it's like, you know, we got to connect these dots in a way that isn't, that it just, it isn't necessarily, you know, it's not just about higher click through or lower cost CPM or whatever. <clears throat> like we have to create a story from our minds with our clients that, that, that kind of, you know, wrap, wraps the whole thing together into a narrative and to see that narrative succeed is, is good. I think it's validating that we're like, oh yeah, I think we, we sort of do understand the psychology here or we, we can help these clients. So that's, that's the sort of fun creative part. Um, and then the hard part is like, I, more of a gripe with you know the the, the industry and sort of you know the, the sort of lack of trust I guess that exists between clients and agencies yeah and maybe that's a of what you're touching on too where it's like um, 
there's a you know i think there's a lot of like there's a lot of bs out there and so client clients are very right to be skeptical but battling through that can be really tough where it's like i promise you we're not here to screw you you know we're here to help um uh or maybe not being able to implement you know there's sometimes that you have these conversations where it's like we understand everything that you're saying is going to be successful for us but we can't do that <laughs> it's like oh this is going to be interesting. So there's different challenges. Yeah, there's different challenges. <laughs> this plan's going to work. It's worked four other times, every time with 100%. Yeah. Oh, we don't want to roll the dice. No, we get that. We totally get that. We're not going to be able to do that. It's yeah. like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it, at, 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 at the larger scale, you know, there's there's other things that come into play. Like there's... There's, we don't have the time to wait. There's we've, our numbers for Q1. You know, we have to present X amount of revenue or, you know, whatever. So it's always kind of a, unfortunately, it's not just a formula, you know, yeah. everything's, everything's uh, on the fly all the time, but that, that's what makes it exciting, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting business model that we've both chosen. Um, and changing so, so yeah. much all the time, you know? It's it never ends, which is cool, right? It it keeps you on your toes. You got to be engaged. I think that's one of the things too. Is like you you can't coast when I when I hear people talk about kind of like the sixties, seventies, eighties, where it was like, you know, look, man, you did TV commercials and you did radio commercials and you might have done some direct mail. It feels so <clears throat> so much simpler than these days, where it's like not. Not only do you have to sort out the right way to do things, you have to you have to have a blocker that constantly sniffs out the 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 tremendous amount of BS that's being thrown your way, and like ignore that, which is really hard to do. How so? I I want to get a little cultural for you. Um, how with everything that's gone on in Austin recently, is it still mm-hmm. weird, or has it gotten completely different? It's uh, well, we live outside of Austin and it's pretty weird. You might be able to hear some chickens like in our neighbor's yard. You know, I moved here only like two and a half, three years ago. <clears throat> and this was like a tremendous three years in the city's history. You know, it's, mm-hmm. there's an Hermes on South Congress. So it's weird, but it, it's not weird the same way. It's not weird. Like, you know, Willie Nelson tie dye, like, you know, marathon while you're smoking weed kind of thing it's it's uh it's corporate you know i think i just saw an article that it's the third most expensive city to go out in after new york and los angeles so it's definitely weird but maybe not weird the way people want it to be weird it's still a fan i mean i, I love it i was yeah. in dallas over the weekend and i like texas a lot in general but comparatively austin still feels like it has this unique energy to it yeah. so it's still a great place uh, but it's changing fast. Ryan, man, we are uh, quickly approaching our time limit here. Uh, yeah. Final question. And I ask most guests this. If you had to start yeah. over, no money, mm. no contacts. How would you restart to get to where you are today or further ahead? Yeah, so I know everything I know, but I have to start over. Mm-hmm. I would. I would focus on a better story. You know, when I when I started my agency, I had really not much of a plan, nor did I have a specific audience in mind for who I wanted to deliver this stuff. And I've realized that that 
that is death. Yeah. You know, I think you need to be super specific. You know, if it can be anything, but you need to have a specific market in mind for whom you serve and, and what value you bring them. Um, so I would, I would be very conscientious about uh, building a story that helps communicate to the right kind of client what we're going to do for them and how it's going to add value. Um, yeah, I think that would have saved me about seven years, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to shout out at this last time? Um, no, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. It was awesome. Um, I'll probably send you a follow-up uh, email with some questions about some of the stuff you talked about. Really appreciate you having me on and um, can't wait to uh, can't wait to hear it live. Hope I didn't embarrass myself. No, you did great. Everything's great. Guys, thanks for listening. Until next time, go make somebody smile today. It's amazing what type of impact it can have on their life. Recording stopped.